Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the family heads and said to them, Let us build with you, for we also worship your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time King Ezarhaddon of Assyria brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people who were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to act against them to frustrate their plans throughout the reign of King Cyrus, of Persia and until the reign of King Darius of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Have you ever been in a church service and heard a sermon and you sat there and you thought, man, I wish this person were here to hear this. I, I know the person that needs to hear this message. I wish that they were here. Well, I've got some good news and some bad news today. You are that person that needs to hear this message. Now, it's not because I'm a great speaker or anything like this. It's a message that all of us are going to connect with. And the encouraging thing is that it's not one where you're getting beat up and you have to do something different. It's one of comfort and it's one of commonality. And as we get into chapter 4 of Ezra, it's really important for us to to set the context again. Parker's already done this, but when we get into chapter 4, we're running into some conflict that the only way that we can understand is to understand what these people have gone through in the past to really understand why they're doing what they're doing. And so we're going to take just a little bit of a a trip back with the nation of Israel, what we're going to see is a cycle that has continued over and over again. So you've probably, I don't know, has anybody watched the Ten Commandments? Anybody seen that? You know, it's old. Okay, thank you for admitting that. You know, in the beginning, Israel uh, found themselves in a famine situation, and, and we're not going to get into all those details, but found themselves in slavery in Egypt, okay, the first captivity. And so they were in slavery in Egypt, and and God delivered them out of that. And God really had to work hard to get them out of that. He had all of these uh, plagues that he made against Egypt, and Pharaoh kept hardening his heart, wouldn't let him go. And then there was the event of the Passover. You may have remembered that the Passover was the time when um, all of the newborns, all of the firstborns were killed at that time, except for the houses that had the blood on the doorpost. And the Bible tells us that the Pharaoh got up in the middle of his night, in the middle of the night with his, his leaders, and they could hear the wailing, and they could hear the mourning throughout Egypt. And at that point, he said, 
we've got to get rid of these people before we all die. And so begrudgingly, he sent them away. He said, take whatever you need, just get out of here. And so they took off. Well, the problem was the next morning when Pharaoh asked for his caramel macchiato, there wasn't anybody to deliver it to him because all the slaves were gone. And so they chased after them. And, and God provided the way, you know the story of how God had split the Red Sea and as the nation of Israel went through and the Egyptians were following after them, he closed the sea on them and he delivered his people. They got to spend some time, you know, sunning themselves in the wilderness for a while, but eventually made themselves to the promised land. And this was a really formative time for the people that we're going to talk about in Ezra chapter 4 because of what happened at this time. Now we're in the promised land, and now they are gathered together as the people of God. And we are going to spend a little bit of time in Kings, and if, if you need a Bible this morning, we're gonna be looking through the Bible. If you say, oh, I forgot my Bible, you can put your hand up, Dave is in the back and he's got some extra Bibles that you can have, but we're gonna be looking at some of these historical passages quickly so that when we get to Ezra chapter four, we can really understand what's going on. But what's happening here in this, this, uh, this time is that Solomon is David's son. And you know Solomon is the smart guy, right? Everybody was coming to Solomon from all over to sit and listen to him. And he was a wise man. He was a smart man. And he was the one that God tapped to build the temple. Uh, he had promised his father, David, that this temple would be built by his son. And Solomon said, I'm the man. I'm going to do that. And Solomon set out to do that. And it was a special time. Have you ever had a special time in your life when you just remember that time? Just a season where you look back and you just smile because you think, man, that was, that was a sweet time. For a lot of the people in Ezra chapter 4, that's this time. Because this is a time that Solomon is going to build this temple. And you think, okay, so he built a temple. What's the big deal? That's why it's important for us to go back and look at it because me retelling the story doesn't begin to do justice to what was happening. So he, he rebuilt the temple, and that was accounted in, in 2 Samuel. But then there was something in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, if you want to turn there. 1 Kings chapter 8. And this is the dedication ceremony. So the building of the temple was magnificent. And all of the verses leading up to this talk about all of the wood and all of the gold overlay and all of the stuff that was happening. And this temple was beyond amazing. This building was incredible. But what was so memorable about this time wasn't just the building and the magnificence and the opulence of the building but it was also the other things that had happened. And so after the temple had been built in chapter eight, we see who was assembled for the dedication ceremony in chapter eight, starting in verse one. It says, and it, at the time Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the tribal heads and all the ancestral leaders of the Israelites before him at Jerusalem in order to bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from the city of David that is Zion. So all the men of Israel were assembled in the presence of King Solomon. That was an amazing sight. 
all of these dignitaries, all of these people. Have you ever been to a ceremony where there were all of these officials? It just has a special something about it. This was a big deal. All of these people were assembled for this. And then we keep going down to verse 3 of chapter 8. It says, All the elders of Israel came, and the priests picked up the ark. The priests and the Levites brought the ark of the Lord to the, the tent of meetings and the holy utensils that were in the tent. King Solomon and the entire congregation of Israel who had gathered around him and were with him in front of the ark were sacrificing sheep and goats and cattle that could not be counted or numbered because there were so many. The priests brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place beneath the wings of the cherubim. Can you get a picture of this site? The Ark of the Covenant is being carried in and there were so many sacrifices of so many animals that it couldn't even be numbered. You may be thinking practically, but that seems like a pretty gruesome scene. And yet this was really impactful for all of these people. And so everyone was there. Everybody was watching it. And then we get down to verse 10 and this is when it gets good. So chapter 8, verse 10, it says, Then the priests came out of the holy place. After they had placed the Ark of the Covenant in there, the cloud, when, when the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That was a life-changing event for these people that are in Ezra chapter four. They're talking about the good old days. This is what they're talking about. If they were there when this happened, this was life-changing. And they were so excited about what God was doing. And, and then it goes on to talk about this extended prayer that Solomon had. Solomon came to the temple he got down on his knees, he stretched out his arms, and he prayed to God with this incredible prayer. And then in chapter 9 and verse 1, God responded. And he said, when Solomon finished building the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all that Solomon desired to do, the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, just as he appeared to him in Gibeon. The Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and petition you have made before me. I have consecrated this temple you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there at all times. That's, that's it. God's people gathered together. They built the temple. It was an amazing dedication service, and God made this promise. They think that's it. But then you turn over a couple more pages and what you find out is that isn't it. Because Solomon in his old age was convinced to turn away from God and to worship other gods and to sin against God. And because of that, that sweet time in the promised land ended up in a second exile. And that's when God said, okay, that's it. Judgment's coming upon you. He, sent Nebuchadnezzar in. He scattered the people out of the city 
and they were in captivity in Babylon, the second captivity. And that is where we start to pick up with the people of Ezra, because now they're in this captivity, they're still sitting there thinking, what just happened? We were on the top of the mountain, everything was going our way, God was with us, and, and now we're scattered abroad, we're out of the land, we're in captivity, how did this happen and why are we here? And they're sitting there trying to figure out what in the world is going on. It had to be a feeling of failure. It had to be discouraging. It had to be confusing. And yet, it was in God's plan. So, they went from being in God's land to um, being in captivity, to being freed, to being in captivity. And now we come to where it was talking in Ezra about Cyrus, this pagan king, that God had stirred his heart. So they're sitting there in Babylon just trying to figure out what's going on. And then all of a sudden they hear that Cyrus, this pagan king, has his heart stirred by God, and he wants God's people to go back into the land. And they've got to be thinking, what in the world is this about? And so they're heading back into the land. So all of the, the names that Parker had talked about last week, making the connections back to the past, back to the history, now we understand what they have gone through with Solomon's temple and everything that had happened there and the discouragement and the, and the second exile. And now they're coming back. And you can see they've got expectations because they know what it was like the first time, right? They knew what God did the first time. They had expectations of what God was going to do this time. And that's what sets the scene for more disappointment as they come into Ezra chapter 4. Now, the interesting thing that I think is, you know, it just says that God stirred the heart of Cyrus to do this. Do you ever ask the question, why? Did, did the people of Israel do something to deserve God to stir the heart of a pagan king to let them go and go back and rebuild the temple? No. This was God's plan. And God is faithful to his plan. What God says he will do, he will do. And so now we come to Ezra. And just as a way of reminder, as the thing on the screen says, we are still in the very beginning part of Ezra where he's rebuilding the temple. We're not even to the part where they're rebuilding the community or the city or so forth. So we're still in this part of rebuilding the temple. So as these people come in and they're thinking about what had happened before, then we get into Ezra chapter 4, and we see three interactions that they have with the people that are in the land. And the first thing that happens is that the people that are there are looking about what's going on. And they're saying, okay, all these people have come back. All these materials are coming in. These sacrifices have been done on the altar and they look like they want to rebuild the temple. So we should be a part of that probably. 
And so these people go to the leaders of Israel and they say, we want a part of this. We want to help you. We want to be a part of the rebuilding of the temple. And you think, why would that be a bad thing? Why would that be a bad thing? But when the offer came in, you need to understand the wheels started turning with these guys. Because when the offer came in from these people, the people of God were concerned. They're thinking, okay, we've been down this road before. We have built the temple of God and we blew it. And if we don't do it right this time, we could blow it again. And we don't want that to happen. So they're thinking, what, what should we say to these people? Well, you've probably heard of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel was with the people here in the Babylonian exile. And he was warning them as they were exiled out of the promised land into Babylon. He said to Israel, he said, you people need to turn from your sin. You need to turn to God or the temple is going to be destroyed. And he implored them to do that and they didn't listen to him and the temple was destroyed. And so they're thinking, okay, we probably should have listened to Ezekiel. We probably should not mess around with sin. And these people that want to help us are known to be sinful people. So that's a concern. But the other thing is, we, we saw in chapter 3 of Ezra, they're afraid of these people. You know, they're, they're looking around saying, these guys are kind of scary. If we say no to them, they could kill us or hurt us or, or something. And so as they're thinking about how to respond and they're thinking about the offer, the reality is they're afraid of these people. And they don't know what to do. And then also, they're afraid of making the same mistakes of the past. As I said before, the cycle. Have you ever had a cycle in your life? Maybe you said, I'm going to save more money. And you get a little bit of money saved up, and guess what? Something happens, and the money goes away. Or you make a purchase you probably shouldn't have made, and, oh, we can make it up, and then it doesn't happen. Or maybe like a lot of us, you know, I'm going to lose weight. And I lose some weight and I get down and this, this feels pretty good. I'm never going back. I'm throwing away all my chubby clothes. Next thing you know, I don't fit in anything. And the cycle continues. Now I got to do it again. That's what these people were looking at. They knew their history. They knew their ability to mess things up. And they didn't want to do that again. And so... They were considering all of these things as they were trying to figure out how they were going to respond to this offer to help them rebuild the temple. Ultimately, the answer was no. So the offer was the first interaction with these folks. The second interaction with these folks was going and telling them, thanks but no thanks. We don't want your help. And that's in verse Three. It says, Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the other heads of Israel's families answered them, You may have no part with us in building a house for our God, since we alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persian, Persia, has commanded us. So, as we think about the rejection, 
Uh, number one, you know, God has judged Israel harshly in the past because of their sin. And they wanted no part of that. And um, they were also um, thinking about King Cyrus because the, the letter that King Cyrus had written telling them to do this said they were to do that. And they didn't want to get King Cyrus mad by having other people be a part of that. And they said, no, that's not gonna happen. So a lot of this was fear-based. Now, the problem was, and they anticipated this, is that because they said no, these scary people weren't just going to say, okay, and go away. These scary people were not going to have it, and they were going to stop this from happening. If they were going to have a part of it, it wasn't going to happen. And so it says um, in verse 4 that, first of all, they discouraged them. So this is the opposition, which is the third interaction. So the first one was the offer, the second interaction was a rejection, the third interaction was the opposition. The opposition started just by discouraging them. It says then in verse four, the people that were already in the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. I would like to know what that looked like. Discouraged them. It seems like such an innocuous term, doesn't it? Maybe they could say bullied maybe roughed up, maybe, maybe give us something, discourage them, but they discouraged them, and that's how it started. Now, we need to stop here because the other two talk about something that's in the future. And as we look at Ezra, as we look at a lot of these books, we think of them in terms of a history book. You know, we're going to Ezra, we're reading history. We expect it to go from Ezra 1 all the way through in a linear fashion of history, and that's not the way it's laid out. That's not the point. That's not the purpose. This isn't a history book. This is more of a theology book, and we're learning about God and his interaction with his people more than we are learning about straight history. And so as the writer of, of Ezra is, is laying this out, he's telling us, first of all, they were discouraged in the moment by the people when they rejected them. And said, oh yeah, well, put them up. You're not gonna build this without us. But then they went the next step and they bribed the leaders. And then he talks about these letters and these letters to uh, Artaxerxes and Xerxes, these other guys, this was way later. But the writer knew that those things happened and brought them into chapter four and included them, even though chronologically they don't really fit right here. But that's not the point. The point is for us to get a feel that the opposition was dogged and wasn't going away. And they escalated it from discouraging to bribing to writing letters to the officials. They were gonna do everything they could to shut this thing down. They did not want this to move forward. And so, get the picture. Here are the people of God. A lot of them remembered what happened back in the day of Solomon. They remembered the, the pageantry of the dedication. They remembered the awesomeness of the building. They remembered over the top, the gold, the wood, all of those things. They remembered Solomon's prayer and how grand that was, and they remembered uh, God's 
presence coming down in a cloud and they remembered God's response and promise to Solomon. They remembered all of that. And then they knew they messed up and they got sent to exile and then God, through this pagan king, sent him back and they thought, this is it. We learned from our mistakes. This is going to be the time that it's going to happen. It's going to be different this time. And then the opposition shuts them down. I don't, I don't know about you, but these, these, these guys are people just like you and me. And there have probably been times in your life when you thought things were going to go differently than they did. And these guys had to be sitting there in total bewilderment and confusion and discouragement thinking, what in the world is going on with this? We're the people of God. They knew they were the people of God. All of Scripture had talked about them being the people of God. God had made promises to them from Abraham going forward. God had delivered them. God had done all of these things. They knew that they were the people of God, and yet here they sat, unable to do anything because these bullies were shutting them down when they were supposed to be rebuilding the temple of God. How is this possible? And yet they were stopped, and they didn't understand, and it was confusing. Have you ever been there when you thought you knew what God was doing and what he wanted to do, and it didn't go the way that you thought? That is a very discouraging time. And yet that's partially because we don't understand that it's God's plan. It's not our plan. And God's plan is always right and his timing is always right. Did God want his people to have to go through all these exiles and all this pain and all this struggle and all this thing or did he want them to honor him, you know? But ultimately, God was faithful in spite of the frailty of his people. God is faithful, and we need to hear that this morning. Do you believe that God is faithful to fulfill the things that he has promised in his word? It's okay. You can audibly say yes. yes. Thank you. God is faithful. So this morning, there are three types of people that are here in this room. The first are the people that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus, the Messiah, who died to pay the price for their sins. You know that your sin has separated you from God, and you have placed your trust and your faith in the fact that he rose from the dead to secure salvation for you and to break the power of sin and death and secure eternal victory. You know that to be true. And you know that God has applied Jesus' perfect righteousness to your account so that God sees you as holy and worthy to be with him. There are people in this room that know that to be true in your life, and you're confident of that. The second group of people are here. And you say, that could be me. It's possible. I, I want it to be, but I'm not sure. I've done a lot of religious things in my life and I've gone to church and I've given and I've served and I've done things, but there's just something that just is uncertain. 
And then there's a third group of people that say, there, there, could, there could be something to this, but I really have no idea if any of this is real. So no, no matter who you are this morning, you can identify with the people of Ezra because there have been times in your life when you've been discouraged and confused. It happens to everybody. It happens to all of us. And these people in Ezra chapter four are absolutely completely distraught. And the question for them is the question for us today. And that question is, who do you trust? These people were in their lives uncertain about a lot that was going on, but they knew that God had been faithful to this point and they didn't understand why the circumstances of life were what they are. You know, and as I was thinking through this, I was thinking of a sermon that I heard 10 years ago. You know, if you remember a sermon you heard 10 years ago, it must have been a good one. This was a good one. And it was entitled, Who Do You Trust? A man that grew up, the, the man that was preaching the sermon, grew up in a broken home. He had made some bad choices as, as a youth so that his mother had sent him across the country to live with his Christian aunt and uncle. And hopefully they could straighten him out and keep him safe. And God took that young boy from the streets of San Jose, California, and he opened his eyes to his need of a savior and he saved his soul. And not only did he do that, but he put his hand on this boy and said, not only am I going to save you, but I want you to be in my full-time ministry. And so this, this kid who a few years before nobody would have ever thought anything about was on the path to serve God. And he went to Bible college and graduated from Bible college and seminary and married a beautiful young woman and set off to serve God. And for about 20 years, 25 years, had been out serving God and telling youth, he was a youth pastor, to follow hard after God, follow hard after God, challenging him to follow hard after God and setting the pace, setting the example in his life to do that. Well, the sermon that I heard 10 years ago was about five months after that man was diagnosed with ALS. And it was his last sermon that he was going to be able to preach. And the house was full. And his challenge to us is, who do you trust? And here is a man who was just hitting the stride of his ministry. And at maximum influence in all of these things, his kids had just gotten to the point in their age where they really needed his influence in their life. And all of these things are going on and wham. ALS, and it's not the slow kind. And so five months later, he preaches a sermon. And the one thing I'll never forget is the joy that was in his eyes and that came through his slurred speech as he told us about the faithfulness of God. It challenged us when he said, really, who do you trust? Who do you trust? 
Well, what that man <clears throat> couldn't possibly know and what you don't know is that he is shaping your spiritual walk today and you don't even know it. You see, that man's name was Patrick McGoldrick. His daughter serves here, Paige, and is a blessing to us and his son Parker is one of our pastors. And I have to think, <clears throat> as Parker was encouraging us last week, that nothing is wasted. He had to be thinking of his father and the fact that his father faithfully served to the very end and that even though his life was, in our estimation, cut short, it wasn't wasted. It was God's plan that it go that way. So his family is left after his death thinking, what is this? Confused, distraught, broken. There's a tension between his last sermon and the words of that sermon. Who do you trust? And the circumstances of life that you're left to live. And yet, the truth is, as Patrick knew, as we know, that God is faithful. Even when the circumstances of life don't look like it. Even when we have a vision in our life of what it should look like and it doesn't look that way, it doesn't mean that God isn't faithful. And we're going to find as we, as we continue to go through the word of God that this was a tough time for the people here in Ezra 4. They didn't know what the future held. They didn't know what was going to happen. All they knew was they were sitting here in disappointment. They were sitting here confused and distraught. And our encouragement today is that we can trust God. I know you, we're all sitting here today with questions about our life, right? What does God want me to do? Why is this going on? Why, why is this person sick? Why is this happening? And we don't have answers. You know, there's a song that I'm enjoying listening to that uh, was written for the people of Ukraine uh, during this time who right now are sitting there looking at their cities on fire and their buildings bombed and burned and, and it's just a shell of what it used to be. And, and the song says, uh, I don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. And when we don't know what God is doing in our life, we can rest in the truth that we've know, we know what he's done. And we know what he's promised. And what he's promised, he will fulfill. He always has. And so these folks are sitting here in confusion, and they're clinging to the promises, knowing that God is faithful. And that's what we need to hear this morning in our life. There's none of us that hasn't questioned what in the world is going on. Why is this happening in my life? Why is this happening in my community? Why is this happening in my job? Why is this happening in my country? What is going on with the world? 
I don't understand, God. Why isn't your gospel penetrating more? I don't understand. And when we don't understand, we can still trust. So as we think about Ezra chapter 4, I want you to reflect on three things. Will you trust him when the circumstances of life contradict what you thought should happen? Let's read that again. Will you trust him when the circumstances of life contradict what you thought should happen? Will you trust him when his plan isn't what you want? And will you trust him when his plan leads you outside of your comfort zone and is scary? Those are not light questions to consider because even as I'm asking them, even as I'm reading them, I know in your mind you are connecting those questions to things in your life. And you're thinking, I know that my mind tells me I'm supposed to. I know that my theology says that that's right. But my heart struggles. And so that's where we're at. Life deals us tough things, but God is faithful. And he can be trusted. Let's pray together. Lord, as we read through your word, your inspired word that you have given to us to guide us and to help us understand you better. And we see the cycles that your people in the Old Testament have gone through. And yet you were faithful. When you made the promise to Abraham, you completed it. You, you are faithful. And you continue to be faithful. We are your people and you are faithful. And we don't always understand and I would say most of the time, we don't understand what you're doing, God. But we know that you're faithful. And we know that you can be trusted. Help our unbelief. Help our fear. Help our desire to want to know all the answers. And to fix all the wrongs. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to be uh, faithfully following you and not trying to lead. Lord, I just pray this morning for each one of us. We're all in different situations. We all have different issues of life that we're confronting. And some are very scary. Some are very sad. Some are just confusing. Lord, we all have these issues of life. Our, 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 our prayer this morning, Lord, is that you would guide, that you would clarify, that you would comfort, that you would just bind up our wounds, and that you would be our God and help us to trust you in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. 
If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.